You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. That's Acts chapter 21, verse 37 through 22, verse 21. Hear the word of God. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. 
Well, as we know, as we've gone through this book, Paul was in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost and to deliver the collection for the saints to the needy Jewish Christians. And some zealous Jews from some zealous Jews, not zoos, from Asia Minor leveled some serious charges against him. The city was in an uproar, and the angry Jews began to beat Paul. When the Roman commander who was in charge of keeping the peace arrived, he saw what was in effect a riot. And it was almost impossible for him to figure out what was going on. So his soldiers arrested and bound Paul in the midst of the pandemonium, and they carried him up the steps to remove the cause of the disturbance. By the time Paul reached the top of the stairs, he was a very sorry-looking figure. Bruised, beaten, dirty, disheveled, the crowd had abused him badly. And the tribune apparently drew the wrong conclusion in thinking that he was an Egyptian terrorist. So the apostle countered by identifying himself as a citizen from Tarsus. He spoke with such refined Greek that the commander was surprised. This was no uncultured terrorist, but a sophisticated and cultured man. And so the Roman tribune allowed the apostle to address the Jewish crowd. Luke records Paul's defense, which he gave from the steps in the Hebrew dialect. He would declare in this defense his appreciation for the Mosaic law and his innocence with respect to it. He had not defiled the temple as some accused him of doing. Neither had he wrongly undercut the Mosaic law. He was a true Jew who believed in the fulfillment of the law by the risen Christ. And what's interesting and what's ironic is that his accusers were the real transgressors of the law. They were the ones who had rejected the Christ. They were the ones who had endorsed the crucifixion of Christ. They were the ones who had beaten the apostle unjustly, without trial, without evidence. By speaking in the Hebrew tongue, therefore, Paul stressed his own Jewishness, and he was trying to win their favor. And I think it worked. This is a common tactic. You remember President Bush. Well, some of you might remember President Bush. He often spoke in the Spanish language on his stump speeches to his Hispanic listeners. Do you remember that? And it was a way of ingratiating himself to them by using the native tongue. There's something about hearing your mother language that breaks down barriers, and that's what Paul was doing. At least temporarily, he worked, he won their favor because a hush came over the crowd. And this ought to be, I believe, ranked among the most famous speeches of all time. You have to admire the apostle's courage. He stood shackled on the top of this stairway, and below him was this surging, hostile multitude of zealous, angry Jews. And yet here was this man speaking plainly and bravely of Christ in hopes of saving just some of them. And as a witness of Jesus, Paul was faithful in his privilege to testify. 
He began by endearing himself to them, calling them brothers and fathers, yet another tactic to gain their favor, to get an ear of the crowd. And he gives them a brief autobiography, reminding them of his own Jewish background. The man was born in Tarsus, trained in the law under the tutelage of the famed Gamaliel, probably the most famous teacher in Israel at the time. And so here's Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, nurtured in the very city of David itself. And as he tells the Philippians, as to the law, he was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He had been very zealous in his persecution of Christians, so fervent in his devotion to Moses, No one even matched or exceeded him in zeal. And then he details in his extraordinary experience on the road to Damascus. Historical experience. That's when he encountered the risen Lord Jesus in this unprecedented way. At noon, in broad daylight, he saw this blinding light shining all around him. And so bright was it that the sun itself was made to look dull by comparison. That's hard to believe, but it's true. And as he fell to the earth, he heard this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Shocked and bewildered, Paul said, who are you, Lord? Because he didn't yet know Christ. And the Lord said clearly and unambiguously, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. I am the Jesus whom you have called with contempt, Jesus of Nazareth. I am the very one whom you persecute when you hunt down Christians. Because up till now, Paul had opposed the Christian faith in ignorance and unbelief. But now the darkness began to be dispelled as he began to understand the truth of what was going on. And this zealous, self-righteous Pharisee was transformed instantaneously into a believing Christian. All of his opposition to Christianity ceased. And Christ sweetly conquered in his life. And from now on, Paul would obey the commands of Jesus the Nazarene. And this meant, as he was intending to show, that a Jew could confess Jesus as Lord and still be faithful as a Jew. He mentioned Ananias, who first ministered to the humbled apostle. And it was Ananias who said to Paul, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And I want you to notice in what Ananias said to Paul, the emphasis upon God's initiative. It's all part of the divine purpose. Paul's conversion to Christ and his commission as an apostle were one at the same time, and it was at God's initiative, not his own. And in summary, he would testify that Jesus, crucified by men, exalted by God, is the promised Messiah. 
He would proclaim Jesus as Lord. And he would take this message to the Gentiles. And there are three themes that I think stand out in this remarkable speech. Three themes. The first one is the continuity or the connection between Judaism and Christianity. Continuous. We could even say that the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Take your pick. Ananias referenced the God of our fathers, appointed Paul as a witness to Christians. He's referring to the same God who spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's the same God who made the promises of greatness, blessing, and salvation in the original call of Abraham. And the point is that the God who called Abraham was the God who called Paul. The way God administers the covenant, as we talked about in Sunday school, may differ, but the same God and the same covenant as the God of our fathers points to. God never changes. The promises were fulfilled in Christ. Jesus fulfills the law. And we pray to the same God who passed through those halved animals in front of Abraham. Do you remember the story? What love and humility that expresses. He commanded Abraham to take these animals and to sever them and to lay them halves apart. And then the fire pot and the furnace walked through those severed animals. Basically saying, God was saying, if this covenant between us is somehow broken, may this happen to me. Well, Abraham was a sinner. So according to the justice of God, the covenant would be broken and he must curse Abraham, right? But God had promised earlier that he would curse those who curse Abraham. So if God cursed Abraham for being a sinner, he must then curse himself for cursing Abraham to remain true to his promise. So to be just, he had to curse Abraham the sinner And to be true, he had to guard Abraham, the believer. What was he to do? Well, all he could do was endure the fate of the divided animals through which he passed. And from our vantage point, we understand that that clearly foreshadowed the cross of Christ. The Lord Jesus suffered vicariously for his people who put their trust in him. And do you see the point? The Messiah that they anticipated is the Christ of the cross. That's what Paul was trying to say. It's the same Christ, the same God, the same covenant, the same way of salvation. There's continuity. So Paul the Christian was in line with the patriarchal fathers of Israel. Abraham is the father of the faithful, the father of all who believe. And Christianity is the fruit of Judaism's flower. The one simply fulfills the other. The one who called Paul on the road to Damascus is the God who called Abraham. Isn't that wonderful? He's the one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He's the one who was sitting on the throne in the vision of Isaiah. He's the same God who blessed Augustine and Calvin and Luther and Edwards. The God of our fathers is the God of Christianity, and you and I are children of Abraham. 
All the prophecies, every promise has been fulfilled in Christ's person and work. And he is the God of our fathers. He's the everlasting one who transcends history. He is, according to Isaiah, high and lifted up, seated on the throne, extending mercy to believers. What mercy is it? We've committed crimes against the throne of heaven. That demands mercy. And you and I cannot trace our physical descent from Abraham. But you and I, if we're believers, can trace our spiritual descent from Abraham. Paul calls Abraham the father of all those who are united to Christ by faith. And in God's eyes, that's the most important thing. I don't care who your ancestors were. You're a child of Abraham if you believe. Nothing else matters on the day of judgment. So first of all, continuity. Paul is telling them there's continuity between Judaism and Christianity. It's the same covenant. Secondly, well, first of all, let me say this. I do think this is one of the most significant aspects of his defense. Ours is the faith of the ancient fathers. Christianity fulfills the entire Old Testament. And if you trust in Jesus, get this, you are a true Jew. You're chosen by God and you're precious to the Lord. Paul says, a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. So according to promise, Christian, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you. You know something, one of the weaknesses of our generation, or maybe the current generation, I'm not sure how to put that, is a lack of historical perspective. The average American today knows and cares little about history before 1980. Maybe 90, I don't know. People don't care what happened before. It's chronological snobbery. And as a culture, we miss so much as a result, especially in the church. We deprive ourselves. We are the heirs of a rich and splendid history. We're rooted in the patriarchs. We are the beneficiaries of the promises to Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And that's what I call identity. We know who we are, where we're from, and where we're going. Years ago, some of you might remember in 1977, Alex Haley's book, Roots. It premiered as a primetime TV show. It was a very, very popular miniseries. And what Alex Haley did, he was a black man, and he traced his lineage back to the days of slavery. And in his quest to discover his genealogical roots, he followed the clues that he'd been given by his grandmother. He spent 12 years traveling three countries, or continents, I should say, tracking down his maternal family. And he traced it back all the way to Kunta Kinte, who had been kidnapped from a small village in West Africa. 
And I say that only to illustrate the longing, I think, that is in everyone to know our lineage and our roots. It's part of our identity. Our origin is part of our identity, and, there's, and if we have no knowledge of it, what does it do but bring frustration? I don't know where I come from. I don't know who I am. As Christians, our origins are traced to the God of our fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So first, there is continuity, but second, there is causality behind Paul's conversion and commission. Causality. God framed the universe such that certain effects follow certain causes, cause and effect. For example, the law of gravity. All of you should know this. When you drop an apple, what happens to it? It falls to the ground, right? Its descent to the ground is caused by gravity, which is caused by God. So letting go of the apple and gravity are second causes, but the first and ultimate cause is God. Both dropping and gravity contributed to the apple's descent, but God was the cause over it. And that's why philosophers have called God the first cause. Are you with me? The first cause. He's behind everything. He preserves and governs every creature. He orders all the creature's actions. Even the desires and the choices and the actions of his own people depend upon the first cause. We choose freely, but he ordains it. And I don't understand that. It's a mystery, but it's true. His providence orders it all, and amazingly, he doesn't destroy our freedom. Nothing is uncertain to God. Nothing is conditional to the Lord. I am God, he says, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He's the first cause. And all this to say that Jesus Christ was the cause of Paul's conversion. He was the one who took the initiative in drawing the former Pharisee to himself. Paul was not seeking the Lord. I hope you see that. He was hunting down Christians. Far from seeking Christ, Paul was in fierce opposition to Christianity. But the Lord appeared and revealed himself to Paul and changed his heart instantaneously. And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And that was the defining moment of Paul's life, meeting Jesus Christ. And it will be the defining moment in every life, either now or at the day of judgment, meeting Jesus Christ. If left to himself, Paul would have continued in the estate and the way of sin. That's for sure. But God had chosen him and Christ had redeemed him and the Spirit now applied to him the benefits of redemption. And the same is equally true of every sincere believer, whether in the Old Testament or the New. 
election to eternal life, the outward call of the gospel, the inward call of the Spirit, and that brings salvation in Christ. It's taught in the Bible from beginning to end. And in the far reaches of eternity, we can't even imagine what that means. But in the far reaches of eternity, God the Father chose those whom he would save. Why he chooses some and not others is one of his secret things. I don't know. Why he renews some and passes by others is a very deep mystery. He has reasons known only to himself because he's God. He's absolutely sovereign. And just as God is the first cause in creation, so he's the first cause in redemption. He has to begin the work of grace in a person's heart or that person will never be saved. That's the truth. He has to choose you and call you or else you'll never choose him. He has to take the initiative. Do you see? It's a little scary, to be honest with you, because we're not in control. (laughs) But we're told in Nahum 1 that the Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. And it is true, I have to admit, according to Scripture, that if we are not saved, we have no one to blame but ourselves. We've sinned, we've fallen short of the glory of God, we've strayed like sheep, we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of men and creatures. It's our sin that has placed us in such peril of everlasting damnation. We're to blame. But if we're saved... We have to trace our salvation to the electing grace of God. He's to be credited. If we're saved, we have to acknowledge that it was God who took the initiative. That's why we sing his praises. If we're saved, we will forever sing with that great innumerable multitude in heaven, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And that's the truth. Paul was not looking for salvation, and I dare say neither were any of us. We were not looking for salvation. But just as the Lord Jesus Christ pursued Paul, he pursued you, and he pursued me. And just as he subdued Paul's heart, so he has subdued our hearts. And so with Jonah, we joyfully declare salvation is of the Lord. Why quibble with him? He's infinitely wise, absolutely sovereign. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? What a glorious theme this is. What a wonderful note of encouragement. Our eternal welfare does not depend upon us. (laughs) We can thank him for that. We're fallible. And we're weak. And if our eternal welfare depended upon us, we would be lost forever. But it depends upon Christ, his finished work and his completed mission. And therefore, Paul can say to the Philippians, without any doubt, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, the causality of God. 
So first of all, there is the continuity. Second of all, there is the causality. And third, and more briefly, there is the universality of the gospel, which is for Jews and Gentiles. He made it clear at the end of his speech that the gospel is not for Jews only. He said he fell into a trance while in the temple. And in a vision, the Lord said that he was sending him far away to the Gentiles. And it was the universal, universality of salvation, not just Jews, but Gentiles, that provoked such a violent reaction from the Jews. All along, they listened. But as soon as he mentioned the Gentiles, they erupted, as we'll see next week. He had struck a nerve. They were furious. Salvation, after all, was to be reserved for the Jews. And yet the apostles said that the promises were made to the fathers and are now offered to non-Jews. It's to be proclaimed to the whole creation. He's the God of all people. Every human traces his origin to the Father of spirits. And the same God who created everyone does not wish that any should perish. Peter expressly says that God desires that all should reach repentance. And so this gospel, this treaty of peace between God and sinners is offered to everyone, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. It's universal. So there is the three themes, continuity, causality, and universality. Paul told them who God is, what he's done, and for whom he did it. That's his defense. It's a thoroughly God-centered defense, an expression of a faith-filled soul. And his speech teaches us a lesson that we should take to heart, doesn't it? By that I mean this, you and I, like him, are called to bear witness, and so we follow his example. Oftentimes I think we're tempted to explain the gospel in purely subjective terms. All of us are tempted. I received Jesus into my heart, and I'm saved. That's the gospel. I made a decision for Christ. I found peace and joy. I'm happy. That's the gospel. Very little, if any, objective facts are included in that kind of explanation. That's not the gospel. That's how you feel because of the gospel. God can and does use it. Indeed, if he can use Balaam's donkey, he can use any one of us, that's for sure. But to emphasize subjective experience over objective fact is lacking, to say the least. It has no sure footing in the everlasting rock of ages. If Christianity is only about us and our initiative, we're going to lose heart and interest very fast. Aside from the fact that we can do nothing for our, our salvation, that's unsatisfactory. You and I are finite, sinful creatures, and from the womb, we are utterly depraved. We are not exciting as much as we might think we are. We are not inspiring. We are not life-giving. I'm glad you found peace and joy and happiness in Christ. What's that to me? I don't care, really. Tell me about the reason for your joy. Tell me about Jesus Christ. 
Tell me that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Tell me that he was buried in the tomb. And tell me that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Tell me that, and that's the gospel. The source of our life and the inspiration of the Christian life is Christ. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus. And Paul's confidence was in Christ, who he is, what he did, and for whom he did it. That's the gospel. So we should start with the three themes. Continuity, causality, universality. The creator who saved Noah through the flood and called Abraham from Ur and gave the commands on Mount Sinai is the God who saves you and I today. Same God. He's the one who caused and initiated reconciliation of sinners with himself. He loved the world and gave his son to save whomever, he, whomever believes. We didn't first choose Christ. There's no way. He chose us and he called us and he sanctifies us. And that's the good news that is universal. Any tribe, any tongue, any nation. Christianity is a religion for the world. And following Paul's example, we follow Christ himself who bore witness. That's what Paul says. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He is simply doing what Jesus himself had done infinitely better. Listen what Paul says to Timothy, and I'm getting close to closing. Just a second. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Here he was, Jesus, arraigned before the Roman governor, and this is in part what Jesus said. My kingdom is not of this world. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. He admitted to being a king, you know, though not in the sense that Pilate meant it. He acknowledged that he rules in the souls of men and women by the truth. He said that his kingdom is of that world in which God's truth reigns eternally. Christ's mission included revealing the truth and sealing it with his blood. And all the subjects of his kingdom are those who've been born of that truth. We've been delivered from the father of lies and we've been united to the truth incarnate. So you and I, let's strive to understand and embrace and live according to the truth. As John says, everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. By the power of truth, Christ makes us ready and willing to live for him because he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Thanks be to God for the inexpressible gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, for the good confession, for the example of the Apostle Paul. Help us to rejoice in the objective facts and the truth of salvation that you've accomplished, that you caused, that you've given to us so freely. Help us to sing your praise, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. 
For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.